0: Earlier this year, President Biden tasked a bipartisan commission of legal superstars with issuing a report analyzing various proposals to reform the Supreme Court. Among the most hotly debated proposals is the suggestion that we should add seats to the bench, or what might more aptly be called court packing. The last time we heard about court packing, it
1: was back in 1937, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sought to get justices on the bench who would uphold his New Deal programs. As many of us learned in school, that plan was supposedly saved off by Justice Owen Roberts' switch-in time that saved nine. As the story goes, his vote to uphold a Washington minimum wage law was supposedly motivated by
0: his desire to take the wind out of FDR's court-packing sails. But the story of what really happened in that case may surprise you. And more importantly, it may offer us some lessons about the perils that accompany efforts to pack the Supreme Court. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're taking on West Coast Hotel versus
1: Parish.
2: The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others
3: elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent.
4: We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent.
3: I dissent.
1: Many of us feel a special affinity for the number nine, the number of justices that currently sit on the Supreme Court. But from the Constitution's
0: perspective, there's no reason why the number of justices has to stay the same. The number of justices isn't set by the Constitution. It's set by statute. And it's actually changed a good deal over the years.
1: The Judiciary Act of 1789, passed by the first Congress and signed into law by President George Washington, established a Supreme Court of just six justices, but that didn't last long. After losing re-election in 1800, John Adams signed a new Judiciary Act, which both established new lower court judgeships and reduced the Supreme Court to five justices. The aim was to pack lower courts with Federalist judges and to deprive the incoming president, Thomas Jefferson, who was a Democratic-Republican, from nominating any justices of his own to the high court. Once President Jefferson took office, his new Congress promptly repealed Adams Judiciary Act and instructed executive branch officials not to deliver the outstanding lower court commissions, creating a dispute that eventually was heard by the Supreme Court itself.
0: For nearly 70 years, the number of seats on the court largely fluctuated based on the number of circuit courts, since justices were also responsible for hearing cases in their circuit. But after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, court packing, or rather court unpacking, made a reappearance. Congress was concerned that Andrew Johnson would appoint justices who would undermine the myriad civil rights measures being passed to protect freed men and women. It therefore reduced the size of the court from 10 to 7 to prevent Johnson from nominating any justices. After Ulysses Grant took office, Congress brought the number back up to 9, where it sat ever since, despite FDR's attempt to change it in the 30s. As the
1: conventional wisdom goes, FDR failed in his court packing efforts because Justice Owen Roberts changed his vote in an important case to uphold the challenged progressive law and to stave off the court packing plan. But as it turns out, the famed switch in time may not have been a switch at all.
3: Cozy up, gather round, I'll tell you a tale about a switch in time that made court back and fail. They said that Robert switched because he fell prey to politics. But in the end, the true story's gonna prevail.
1: Before we get to all that, here's the conventional story of what went down in West Coast Hotel, as told by two law professors who are experts in this period of Supreme Court history.
5: Uh, I'm Mark Tushnet. I'm a professor of law emeritus at Harvard Law School uh, and have written a very long book on the Hughes Court that's coming out early next year.
4: I'm Barry Cushman. I'm a law professor at the University of Notre Dame.
0: He's also the author of
4: Rethinking the New Deal Court, the Structure of a Constitutional Revolution.
1: Here's Professor Tushnet.
5: So Roosevelt's elected in 1932 with a court that has sort of three, consistent liberals.
0: That's Justices Brandeis, Cardozo, and Stone, sometimes called the Three Musketeers.
5: And four consistent conservatives.
0: That's Justices Butler, McReynolds,
1: Sutherland, and Van DeVanter, the so-called Four Horsemen.
5: And then two people, both recently appointed, uh, Chief Justice Hughes and Justice Owen Roberts, who nobody really knows what they're positions are, they both were nominated by Herbert Hoover, so they were nominated by a Republican president, but both were sort of, I don't know, quite maverick Republicans, not, they weren't obvious allies of Herbert Hoover. Roosevelt comes in and, you know, it's the middle of the Depression and does a bunch of things that are, call it constitutionally aggressive
1: constitutionally aggressive. I love that euphemism.
5: And during that term, the 35-36 term, the court invalidates a whole slew of statutes.
0: Here's Professor Cushman.
4: FDR's relationship with the court was not a particularly strong one or favorable one at the time. In 1935, the court struck down the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was the central portion of the New Deal recovery plan for uh, the industrial sector. Uh, it struck down the railway uh, uh, pension plan for railroad employees. It struck down a farm debt relief act uh, designed to ameliorate the condition of uh, distressed farmers. Uh, and then in 1936 a court struck down the Agricultural Adjustment Act which was the centerpiece of uh, recovery legislation for the agricultural sector Uh, It struck down the Guffey Coal Act, uh, which regulated both uh, prices and wages and working conditions for coal miners, and it struck down New York's uh, minimum wage law for women in uh, the Topaldo case at the end of the term.
0: Justice Roberts joined the majority in each of these cases, voting to strike down the challenge legislation. He even wrote the opinion in two of them. The Topaldo case in particular is critical for understanding the story of West Coast Hotel.
1: Topaldo involved a New York minimum wage law for women. Thirteen years earlier, in Adkins versus Children's Hospital, the court had struck down a very similar minimum wage law in Washington, D.C. In Topaldo, Justice Owen Roberts joined the Four Horsemen in relying on
0: Adkins to strike down the New York law. Then what happened? Court packing comes on the scene, although technically, FDR called it the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1937. Here's Professor Tushnet.
5: So the court becomes a matter of concern for Roosevelt because he thinks that, in particular, the National Labor Relations Act is very likely to be vulnerable uh, to the same kind of constitutional challenge. And then in early January, he uh, proposes a very awkward uh, system of uh, expanding the court to, uh, at the time, 15 justices, Uh, He dresses it up in good government uh, language, but everybody knows that it's aimed at just making sure that there's a majority to uphold uh, uh, New Deal legislation.
1: Picture yourself cozied up by the fire, listening to one of the president's famed fireside chats. It's the usual, the depression again. Then FDR drops this bomb.
2: Last Thursday, I described the American form of government as a three-horse team provided by the Constitution to the American people so that their field might be plowed. The three horses are, of course, the three branches of government, the Congress, the executive, and the courts. Two of the horses, the Congress and the executive, are pulling in unison today, the third is not. That is not only my accusation. It is the accusation of most distinguished justices of the present Supreme Court. I have not the time to quote to you all the language used by dissenting justices in many of these cases.
0: See, dissents have always been a hot topic.
2: I want, as all Americans want, an independent judiciary as proposed by the framers of the Constitution.
1: Well, not so independent so as to thwart FDR's will, but anyway.
2: What is my proposal? It is simply this. Whenever a judge or justice of any federal court has reached the age of 70 and does not avail himself of the opportunity to retire on a pension, a new member should be appointed by the president then in office with the approval, as required by the Constitution, of the Senate of the United States. That plan has two chief purposes. By bringing into the judicial system a steady and continuing stream of new and younger blood, I hope first to make the administration of all federal justice speedier and therefore less costly. Secondly, to bring to the decision of social and economic problems younger men who have had personal experience and contact with modern facts and circumstances. This plan will save our national constitution from hardening of the judicial arteries.
1: Using an analogy to hardened arteries to say the justices
0: are old, inefficient, and out of touch? Microaggression... Here's Professor Cushman on FDR's twofold justifications.
4: Well, initially, he claimed that it was because the judges were too old to keep up with their docket and they were denying review in too many cases. He eventually had to retreat from that. Uh, Chief Justice Hughes, at the request of Burton Wheeler, prepared a letter that uh, Wheeler read before the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, on March 22nd of 1937, in which he explained that the court had been abreast of its docket for many years. It wasn't behind in its work, uh, that it wasn't denying meritorious cases. In fact, it was probably taking uh, too many that didn't deserve review. And at that point, um, Roosevelt uh, and his lieutenants backed off of the uh, too old to be efficient uh, rationale for uh, the court packing plan and switched instead to uh, a substantive argument in favor of having new blood on the court that would look at constitutional issues differently.
0: Here's Professor Tushnet again. Roosevelt
5: uh, did offer what I call a good government fig leaf for his proposal. And um, uh, it was a fig leaf and everybody understood it right away. And and so, I mean, one lesson of the court packing episode was um, you can't get away with this sort of fig leaf. Um, And so it's not worth trying.
1: What happens after that? The court comes out with a decision in a case that had been docketed just three months after Topaldo and had nearly identical facts to both Topaldo and Atkins. The case's name? West Coast Hotel versus Parrish.
0: The court issued its decision in West Coast Hotel in March 1937, just months after Topaldo and on the heels of the court-packing proposal. And how did it rule? The case came out the exact opposite way as Topaldo. In a shocking about-face, Justice Roberts turned on the four horsemen and joined the three musketeers and Chief Justice Hughes to overturn Adkins and uphold the minimum wage law. Everyone assumed the same thing. Justice Roberts switched his vote to stave off the threat of court-packing.
1: Even the dissent had something to say about it. Justice Sutherland wrote, If the Constitution stands in the way of desirable legislation, the blame must rest upon that instrument and not upon the court for enforcing it according to its terms. Much of the benefit expected from written constitutions would be lost if their provisions were to be bent to circumstances or modified by public opinion a court or legislature which should allow a change in public sentiment to influence it in giving to a written constitution a construction not warranted by the intention of its founders would be justly chargeable with reckless disregard of official oath and public duty.
0: So that's the story we're all told. Justice Owen Roberts caved in West Coast Hotel due to public pressure and more directly, FDR's court packing plan. But as it turns out, that story's not right at all.
3: Justice Sutherland's mad and the public will that Robert Switch in Parrish was to save the nine. They only saw T'Pauldo followed swiftly by West Coast Hotel. But we'll switch up the story and let you make up your mind.
1: For one, it's ridiculous to say Robert switched his vote when he wasn't exactly a
0: solid vote to begin with. Here's a little bit about Justice Roberts. Owen Josephus Roberts was a Pennsylvania lawyer through and through. He was born in Pennsylvania, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and UPenn School of Law. He was the first assistant district attorney of Philadelphia County, professor at UPenn Law School, and after he retired from the Supreme Court, he returned to UPenn as dean. Shortly after that, he died on his Pennsylvania farm. He was known by all to be a hardworking and honest man. In law
1: school, Justice Roberts became acquainted with George Wharton Pepper, a distinguished Philadelphia attorney who recommended him as special government prosecutor in the Teapot Dome scandal. That scandal involved allegations that the Harding administration had accepted bribes from oil companies in return for special terms when it was leasing out its federal petroleum reserves. Wharton said in his autobiography that he had told President Coolidge, the administration needs the best available man for the job. I know one who combines character, ability, fearlessness, and wide experience, and against whom no disqualifying insinuations can be made.
0: Roberts was later nominated to the Supreme Court by President Hoover, although he wasn't Hoover's first choice. Hoover originally nominated Judge John J. Parker, but Parker later withdrew after it came out that he had made racist statements. Justice Roberts was nominated on the theory that he would be non-controversial, and indeed he was, confirmed without a single no vote by the Senate. While some progressives questioned Roberts' prior
1: career as a private attorney in service of corporations, the American Federation of Labor came out in Roberts' support because he had charged nominal fees to labor leaders in private practice. Already, Justice Roberts was a dichotomy, both accused of shilling for corporate America and supported by unions. Didn't garner a single no vote, probably because he was equally pleasing to all. From the outset, no one was quite sure what type of judge he would be. Fortune magazine at the time called him... An important question mark.
0: Roberts was a lawyer's lawyer. Former dean of Harvard Law School and Supreme Court advocate Erwin Griswold said in a tribute to Roberts after his death, quote, he did not have an original or innovating mind. He was not a philosopher of law. His mind was analytical. His opinions did not ring with phrases nor glint with striking metaphors, but they are clear and can be understood. Fun
1: fact, Dean Griswold was the same Harvard dean who asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg why she was taking a man's space at Harvard, although it turns out the story is a little more nuanced. He was asking because he wanted to use the stories to justify the women's presence to those who doubted women entering law school, although Dean Griswold may not have realized what a patronizing question it was at the time. Perhaps in the same vein, Griswold meant all of those comments about Roberts not being a philosopher as a compliment to Roberts, but it sure doesn't sound like one.
0: Dean Griswold also said, however, that Roberts, quote, always stated his conclusions from the bench without reading his opinions and without notes. With flawless delivery, without hesitations, with great clarity of phrase and voice, and with brevity, he gave a clear summary of the issues and the reasoning of his opinion. Often his orally announced opinions were little works of art. When he was finished, those in the courtroom knew exactly what had been decided and the reasoning of the opinion. These were remarkably skilled lawyers' performances.
6: Just somebody
1: that I used to know. When Roberts took the bench, there was already a 4 4 divide on the court. Justice Holmes wrote in a letter that he foresaw some clashes of opinion, and he found himself wondering what turn our new member will take. He makes a good impression, but as yet I have little notice of his characteristics.
0: From the outset, then, Roberts was something of a swing vote, and he was committed to acting not ideologically, but pragmatically. Here's Professor Cushman.
4: Yeah, I think I think he was a, a lawyer's lawyer. There's a the one book that's been written about Roberts is called In Search of a Judicial Philosophy. And the conclusion that is reached is uh, that the search was ultimately unsuccessful. I think that's a little harsh, but Roberts was very modest about his own uh, endowments. He once wrote, Who am I to revile the good God who did not make me? I, I may not get the list right, but it was a field, a Bradley, a Holmes, a Brandeis or a Cardozo. You know, he didn't think that he was. A great judge, but he was a conscientious judge. And I think, uh, you know, a, a moderate judge. And moderate judges, I think, are often misunderstood because they don't have a clear judicial philosophy that you can identify. They tend to move from case to case. And sometimes it's hard to sort of tease out the principles that uh, have guided them.
1: In fact, the quote was a Marshall, a Tawny, a Bradley, a Holmes, a Brandeis, or a Cardozo. What a list. Putting Marshall on there? Sure. Tawny? Good God. Just like this list, Justice Roberts was a mixed bag.
0: Roberts wrote opinions in 353 cases, and of those, 282 were majority opinions. Just 62, or less than 20%, were dissents. And he wrote just four concurrences and five separate opinions. His tendency not to write concurrences will become an important fact later on. Robert's lack
1: of a judicial philosophy and tendency to rule instead as a lawyer resulted in some decisions that are hard to reconcile. On the one hand, he wrote the opinion in U.S. versus Butler, which struck down taxes under the Agricultural
0: Adjustment Act. On the other hand, he actually expanded Congress's taxing power in the process. On the one hand, he's famous for writing an opinion striking down the Railroad Pension Act, one of the centerpieces of FDR's New Deal legislation, on the theory that it violated due process to retroactively create pension obligations. But on the other hand, he voted with the majority in Home Building and Loan Association versus Blaisdell, a case that is infamous for drastically undermining economic rights, like the right to contract.
1: On the one hand, he wrote the opinion in Taylor versus Mississippi that states could not punish Jehovah's Witnesses for encouraging people not to salute the flag. On the other hand, he dissented in West Virginia versus Barnett, the case that ruled that states couldn't compel students to salute the flag. Perhaps even more perplexingly, these two contradictory decisions came out on the same day.
0: There's a pair of cases, Duke versus Commissioner, and the St. Louis Union Trust cases that even Roberts apologist Dean Griswold could not excuse. These cases arose in the context of a technical tax issue. Suffice it to say that in the former, Roberts voted with Brandeis, Stone, and Cardozo in favor of the government. And yet, when the same issue came up the following year, Roberts voted the other way with Chief Justice Hughes and the Four Horsemen, and Justices Brandeis, Stone, and Cardozo dissented. Said Dean Griswold, quote, it is not easy to see any real basis of distinction between the Duke and the St. Louis Union trust cases, and it is hard to interpret the situation except as a change of mind. Roberts' vote in Duke, he said, has always been a mystery to me. Roberts had some good decisions for civil rights.
1: He dissented in Korematsu, for example, when the majority upheld the internment of Japanese citizens, writing that detention was merely a euphemism for imprisonment on the grounds of ancestry. And yet, He upheld the Democratic Party's exclusion of Black voters from primaries in Grovey v. Townsend on the theory that the Democratic Party was a private entity and not subject to the Constitution. That decision was overturned less than a decade later.
0: Roberts was similarly inconsistent with regards to free speech. In Herndon v. Lowry, he ruled that, quote, The power of a state to abridge freedom of speech and of assembly is the exception rather than the rule. Yet, in Valentine v. Crestensen, he ruled that, quote, The Constitution imposes no such restraint on government as respects purely commercial advertising. There can be no better summation of Justice Roberts than the
1: fact that he voted with the majority in both my favorite and one of my least favorite Supreme Court opinions. He voted with the majority in New State Ice Co. versus Liebman, a lovely opinion striking down a law which required sellers of ice to get permission from other ice sellers before operating. That opinion, which was decided on my birthday by the way, concerns a type of law that is at the centerpiece of my practice, and it is a brilliant vindication of the right to earn a living. But he also wrote the opinion in Nebbia versus New York, a case that upheld a New York minimum price law that literally made milk more expensive during the depression, that relegated the right to earn a living to second-class status, and that ushered in the so-called rational basis test for economic regulations.
0: In some, Roberts was not exactly a consistent vote for anything, so it's silly to call any of his decisions a switch. But beyond that, we now know in hindsight that he voted in West Coast Hotel prior to court packing being introduced. It's true that the decision came down in March 1937, but in actuality, the vote was taken in December the prior year, not long after oral argument and in accordance with the court's usual procedures. The opinion release was delayed until March because Justice Stone was absent in December due to illness, laying comatose in his bed, as Roberts put it. At the December conference with Stone absent, the vote came down 4-4. Four to four. When there's a tie at the Supreme Court, the lower court's decision is left to stand, meaning Adkins would have been overruled and the Washington statute left intact. Thinking that such a big decision should be decided by the vote of a full court rather than an evenly split eight justices, Chief Justice Hughes decided to postpone the decision until Stone returned. And once Stone recovered, he brought the vote to overturn Atkins to five, and the opinion was released. The problem was that in the meanwhile, FDR had introduced court packing. People saw Topaldo, they saw FDR introduce court packing, they saw West Coast Hotel, and they assumed Roberts changed his vote. The damage was done.
1: But why then did Roberts vote to overrule Atkins in West Coast Hotel and not in Topaldo? turns out there's a perfectly legitimate reason. After Roberts' death, Felix Frankfurter produced a memo written by Roberts in which the justice revealed that he had been prepared to overrule Adkins and Depaldo, but he didn't for one simple reason. Counsel for New York hadn't asked him to. Instead, New York had insisted that the facts of Depaldo were distinguishable from Adkins. Justice Roberts thought this was a litigation strategy that was, quote, disingenuous and born of timidity, he didn't think that Tipaldo was in any way distinguishable from Atkins, and he felt he couldn't overrule Atkins given that the question hadn't been fairly presented to the court. He therefore voted with the four horsemen that the court was bound by Atkins and that
0: the statute had to be upheld. In sum, Roberts' later vote in West Coast Hotel seemed like it was a switch, but it wasn't. It was just some very technical lawyering on behalf of a lawyer's lawyer through and through. If only Roberts had written a concurrence in Tipaldo explaining his vote. Dean Griswold said, it is clear that it would have been better if it had been separately expressed. Roberts himself said, my proper course would have been to concur especially on the narrow ground I had taken. I did not do so.
1: According to Justice Frankfurter, is one of the most ludicrous illustrations of the power of lazy repetition of uncritical talk that a judge with the character of Roberts should have a change of judicial views out of a deference to political considerations. Roberts' only fault was caring so little about his own record that he didn't write a concurring opinion. I guess we need to start a new show called Concurred.
3: Turns out Justice Roberts was more complex than you thought. Some cases he was cold in others he was hot. The court had to postpone because of sick Justice Stone, but Roberts cast his vote before packing was hot.
0: Others have a less charitable view of why Roberts changed his mind between Topaldo and West Coast Hotel. Here's Professor Tushnet.
5: Okay, there's one further part of the story, which is Chief Justice Hughes. There's what Roberts says in, I think it's like 1945, 46, 47, he's interviewed by uh, the person who's writing a biography of uh, Justice Stone. And the interviewer asks him, well, what happened in 1937? And in particular, what was your relationship with Hughes? And Roberts, who is a very self-effacing guy, says, you know, I really don't now understand what was going on then. Hughes, he says, was a very powerful personality. I, he did talk with me about these cases. And I went along with him for reasons that I can't currently remember. And so it might be that Hughes was, you know, not quite forcing Roberts to change his position, but sort of overpowering him with his intellect. Hughes was a very smart, very good lawyer. Roberts understood that he was not as smart and as good a lawyer as Hughes
0: so what about that dissent written by Justice Sutherland, which also seems to point fingers at the majority for creating a politically motivated switch in time? According to Professor Cushman, the majority wasn't saying that the Constitution should turn on current events, like court packing, but rather that certain events trigger powers already vested to the government by the Constitution.
4: Right. So there he's he's pointing to a couple of passages in Hughes's majority opinion. But Hughes also says... You know the economic conditions that have supervened give the give cause for fresh consideration to this case, and he's articulating a principle that was pretty well established in the court's jurisprudence, although it's one that Sutherland didn't agree with, and that is that an emergency doesn't create a power, but it may give rise to the occasion for um, the use of a power. that is, for example, War doesn't give rise to the war power. The war power is already in the Constitution, but it's the occasion of war that gives rise to um, the opportunity for the uh, the Congress to employ the war power in, in enacting legislation. And what Hughes is saying there is that economic circumstances, circumstances of economic crisis have been recognized in various areas of the court's jurisprudence as providing the occasion for regulation that might otherwise, under other circumstances, not be within the scope of the police power. So they're arguing over that issue.
1: One last thing about the dissent while we're talking about it, since this is a show about dissents after all, in urging that the court should have struck down the law mandating minimum wages for women, it's actually a very empowering decision for women. Justice Sutherland remarks that, quote, women today stand upon a legal and political equality with men. There is no longer any reason why they should be put in a different class in respect of their legal right to make contracts, nor should they be denied, in effect, the right to compete with men for work, paying lower wages, which men may be willing to accept. And it is an arbitrary exercise of the legislative power to do so. Talking about Sutherland's dissent, Professor Cushman said,
4: uh, He talks particularly about how women need to be treated equally because now they're political equals because uh, of the ratification of the 19th Amendment which resolution he actually introduced in the Senate uh, when he was a senator from Utah. And so he took great pride of authorship uh, or at least inter- introducership uh, of that resolution. And if you look through his private papers, it's really quite remarkable. The letters he gets from women praising him for voting to strike down the minimum wage law that was just for women. There's one from the secretary of the National Women's Party, which is Alice Paul's organization. And there's another that says, may I say that your um, dissent in this case was to me as the rainbow was to Mr. Wordsworth. It's just waxing poetic about how wonderful it is that uh, he took this view. So the, the sort of equality feminist camp, I think is largely sympathetic with, uh, his point of view. People like Florence Kelly, the more protectionist feminist camp, are of course strongly disagree.
1: In any event, it's pretty clear Justice Roberts' so called switch was hardly a switch, and it wasn't because of court packing.
0: So are there any lessons that can be learned from this episode? One is that it's wrong to ascribe partisan motives to judges. Here's Professor Cushman on the public's incorrect reading of what happened in West Coast Hotel.
4: This was a time when a lot of writing about um, the judiciary was starting to take on a sort of behavioralist tinge that justices are basically politicians in robes and basically just implementing their uh, political views uh, through decisions and then dreaming up some technical mumbo jumbo that can uh, that can disguise what's really going on. Um, I think that story is uh, unfortunately obscurantist because um, if you look at um, the private papers of the justices you see instances over and over again of them first of all voting positions uh, that they disagree with politically Uh, you know, Justice Brandeis and Justice Stone both disliked the Agricultural Adjustment Act. They thought it was bad policy. They voted to uphold it. Uh, they both thought that the government's gold clause policy was bad policy. They both voted to uphold it. Uh, Stone thought that, uh, the Railroad Retirement Act was bad policy, but he voted to uphold it. Um, Roberts ran into Secretary of uh, the Interior, uh, and told him after the hot oil case in 1935 that where they'd struck down a provision of the National Industrial Recovery Act governing the oil industry, that he was very sympathetic uh, to um, what they were trying to do with respect to oil regulation, and he hoped they'd find a way that they could do it legally.
0: Can you imagine a justice saying something like that today?
4: And if you look at the conference notes that many justices took during this period, you find that when they're in the conference room, they're not sitting around talking about politics and saying, well, how are we going to make, how are we going to sell this? Uh, they're talking straight law. If you look at the, for example, in the the conference notes for the social security case involving the old age pension system, halvering against Davis, almost the entire conference is about the jurisdictional issue. They're not, you know, they don't spend as much time talking about the merits. Several of the justices spoke only to the jurisdictional issue. Uh, so they're lawyers doing law And uh, I think that to to think otherwise uh, about these folks is is mistaken. Um, There's just too much evidence that that runs counter to that hypothesis.
1: In fact, court packing only served to make the court appear political when it wasn't. Despite that the court was comprised of lawyers doing law, no one was able to see past court packing after it was introduced. Court packing tainted the court and the
0: decisions that came out in the aftermath. There's another lesson to be learned in that the irony of it all is that by the time FDR died, after 12 years in office,
4: he actually had seven on on the court at the time that he left. And he he actually also promoted Stone to the chief justiceship. And Burns was only on for one year and then was replaced, I think, by Wiley Rutledge. So by 1945, he had appointed every member of the court except for Owen Roberts.
1: So despite all the hand-wringing, FDR got his judges anyway. It all comes around eventually.
3: Court packing is back because they say justice isn't blind and they assume judging and politics are always aligned. But Felix Frankfurter said it best, and it wasn't a jest. It's a dangerous game thinking we can read judges' minds.
0: West Coast Hotel should stand as a cautionary tale about the perils of court packing. And yet here we are, nearly a 100 years later with groups urging the president to try it once again. And after President Biden tasked a commission to study the issue, people from across the political spectrum have spoken out against it, from libertarians like Professor Randy Barnett, to conservatives like Maureen Mahoney, to liberals like Professor Akilah Marr. Even RBG counseled against court packing before she passed away.
5: Nine seems to be a good number, and it's been that way for, for a long time. I think
3: that was a bad idea when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to pack the court.
1: Why is court packing making a resurgence? We asked someone who may know a thing or two about it, given that he wrote a book on the judicial nomination process.
6: Ilya Shapiro, Simple Constitutional Lawyer. Also, I'm a vice president at the Cato Institute and director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies, where most relevantly to this case, I wrote Supreme Disorder Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Progressives are frustrated, specifically about the blockade of Merrick Garland in 2016 uh, on the argument that the next president should should be the one who's who's filling that seat uh, the great Scalia seat uh, and then four years later to add uh, insult to injury or injury to injury as, as uh, maybe you want when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died about a month and a half before the election less than a month and a half Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell did confirm uh, a new justice Amy Coney Barrett At this point. But I don't think the story really starts with 2016 and the death of Scalia and the nomination of Garland and the the blockade. Uh, The modern kind of drumbeats, progressive drumbeats towards core packing, start with Bush v. Gore in in 2000. And the feeling that uh, George W. Bush was an illegitimate president who was selected rather than elected uh, in the case of Bush v. Gore. And he, of course, nominated and had uh, confirmed. Chief Justice Roberts, and then Justice Alito. Uh, and they were illegitimate, uh, even though they came in to a second term, not his first term. Uh, and then, you know, Trump's election was disputed. And then, uh, you know, he appointed the, the whole Garland situation that we just recalled. So there, there are a lot of people, uh, a lot of progressives, uh, who when you add to those, to those five, the two Bush uh, appointees and the three Trump appointees, you add to them Clarence Thomas, Very controversial confirmation in 1991, appointed by George H.W. Bush, you know, there are progressives making the case that all six uh, uh, Republican-appointed justices on the Supreme Court are illegitimate. So progressives are frustrated that they've won a bunch of presidential elections, they've done all right in the congressionals, and yet only three of the nine Supreme Court justices were appointed by Democratic presidents.
0: Here's Professor Tushnet, who favors court packing, agreeing with at least that last part.
5: I think the reason that it's become more prominent on the uh, political agenda is a sense among some uh, Democrats in particular that the court has become uh, what uh, they and I would call unbalanced. That is, although over the past two generations, we've seen a more or less fluctuation of political control in Congress and the presidency between Democrats and Republicans. The court has basically been uh, controlled by conservatives for, I would say, probably two generations and is unbalanced.
0: Yet once again, for the cheap seats, judging is not political at least in the sense that it's not just pure partisan politics. Here's Elia.
6: There's lots of provisions in the Constitution uh, that is calls for judgment. It's not like you just enter various inputs into a machine and it spits out what the answer is. Um, so I don't think any judges or justices, or very few at least, are political in the sense that um, they want the, the red team or the blue team to win. But they can be ideological, and there's not anything necessarily wrong with that. And The populace, the voters, should argue about what the proper theories of interpreting the Constitution are uh, and empowering presidents and senators who will nominate judges that uh, um, operate based on those theories. But judging is is different uh, than making political decisions, and the extent to which political actors fail to explain that to the voters is uh, a detriment to our body politics. I always ask people, you know, professors or uh, elected officials, uh, judicial judges, give me an example of a policy or a law where your policy preference disagrees with your legal conclusion about whether that's constitutional. And if someone can't come up with any examples of that, then they're, they're not doing law right.
1: This is borne out by the case breakdowns from the most recent term. Despite the perception that every case is split ideologically. That's just not true. The court issued more unanimous decisions last term than the term before it, including in some rather controversial cases. And it saw its fair share of interesting bedfellows. Here's Ilya.
6: This past term, the court only decided six cases with the six Republican-appointed justices in the majority and the three Democratic-appointed ones in dissent. Just six of the 55. 55 is low. The court should be taking more and deciding more cases. But um, there were only six of those kinds of decisions. There were six other six to three decisions with other kinds of alignments. There were five different alignments in five to four cases. There were nearly half of the cases were decided unanimously. You add in the ones that were decided with just one descent and you're already up to 60%. So, you know, there, there might be more ideological split on the shadow docket. Shadow. The, the, those cases that aren't taken up uh, for full briefing and argument, which is a separate discussion about the, the use of the shadow docket. But the sunshine docket, as it were, does not reveal a court that's uh, hyper-partisan or 6-3 conservative, nor even this kind of three-three-three, you know, left-right and, and, and center-right or, or, or moderate. And the Justice Breyer has been vindicated i think but starting in april in harvard i think he gave a speech talking about the court as a legal institution not a political one and uh, this term bears that out you know there were a few high profile cases that did meet the expect quote-unquote expected ideological breakdown but uh this is not the same as as just congress voting on party lines
5: does that make me great Does that make me
2: crazy? Does that make me crazy?
0: Probably. Similarly, even though people are constantly saying that the nomination process has become increasingly politicized in recent years, as Ilya points out, the most important factor in whether a given nominee will be confirmed is simply whether there's divided government
6: we've had plenty of nominees in our history not acted upon tabled quote unquote postponed indefinitely that's a great senate euphemism right only about 3 quarters of the just over 3 quarters of nominees historically have been confirmed so what determines whether a nominee gets confirmed united versus divided government is very 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 important whether the senate and the president are controlled by the same party and what year of the term so in the fourth year the presidential election year it's a lot lower confirmation rate uh, than the first uh, than the first three years. So knowing nothing about any political situation or what year you're in, if you you know told a historian what the makeup of the Senate is and who controlled the White House and what year of the presidential term it was, you could make a pretty educated guess, pretty good guess about whether that nominee is being confirmed. So you know it's just it's just bare knuckle politics and the, the ways that the the winds ebb and flow there's there's very little new under the sun in all this stuff
1: as Ilya sees it it's not really that the nomination process has gotten more political so much has just gotten to be differently political
6: we have had close confirmations in the past in fact the closest confirmation was stanley matthews in the 1880s was confirmed 24 23 that's even closer than than kavanaugh or or, or barrett politics has always been part of the process What's different now is the way that plays out. The emphasis on judicial philosophy rather than balancing regions or placating factions within your party or religion or these different ways that politics would rear its head or focus on one particular issue, be that industrial regulation, slavery, the founding of the republic and the powers of the new government, uh, these sorts of things that politics has filtered through in different ways. I mean, heck. George Washington had a nominee rejected for political reasons. So this is not a modern innovation.
0: And while some call for court packing because they think the Supreme Court has gotten a little too involved in our lives or because it's supposedly anti-democratic when the court strikes down duly passed laws, says Ilya.
6: Yeah, you, you don't need the First Amendment to protect popular speech by majorities. You don't need the Fourth Amendment to protect you know, the majority's desire to punish or, or or criminalize or imprison people they don't like. The constitutional protections that we have are to preserve our liberty against often uh, the popular will, you know, lynch mobs and and things like that. So yes, courts are anti-democratic. That That is indeed uh, the point. If they were just deferring to the political branches, well, we don't need courts to do that, right? Calling a court anti-democratic which both conservatives and uh, progressives do at different points, right? The conservative mantra: unelected judges are doing these things and and uh, overturning popular laws. That you know, you don't. It's it's not it's not in one uh, in one team or or one side of the political spectrum that's that's guilty of that kind of uh, demagoguery, really. But, you know, I disagree with Alexander Bickel, who talked about the courts as a Yale law professor, contemporary of Robert Bork in the 50s and 60s. He talked about the um, counter-majoritarian dilemma. Uh, And so courts are supposed to exercise passive virtues. Well, no, we pay judges to act to be, you know, not activist, but not pacifist either. You know, judge the law, do your best to interpret the law and the Constitution as as you see fit. And then the voters can can decide uh, whether that's the kind of judge we want. And, you know, fundamentally, if you're really so far outside the bounds, I suppose you can be impeached, which is a political remedy for all sorts of, of misconduct. But, but no, saying that that judges are, are anti-democratic, I mean, that, that's a good thing. They're, they're, supposed, to, they're supposed to be that. If, if, if the democratic branches, if the politically elected branches didn't violate the constitution, then, then judges wouldn't have to uh, invalidate their, their actions.
1: So if not court packing, what? Is there any room for reform?
6: I've written both in my book and and separately. um, I support term limits for justices, 18-year terms, a new vacancy every two years, just because that would increase public confidence in the court. And it seems like more turnover, more regularity, so you don't have these arbitrary uh, vacancies or morbid health watches for octogenarian justices. All that would be to the good. But let's be clear, that would not change the ideological balance of the court. It would not fix its power. it would not fix you know the reason people complain about it. So and it would uh, take a constitutional amendment. I just don't think any of these so-called reforms would would do anything. Um, they're addressing symptoms. they're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic where the, the Titanic is the ship of state. The court is too powerful because the federal government is too powerful. So the only ultimate solution, Is to return power to the states and the people, uh, recognize robust individual rights, um, and as I said, make make each of those seats less important. Um, That's the only way to reduce that that fighting. And you know, let Texas be Texas and California be California and Florida be Florida and and, and what have you. That's the only way to reduce tensions, you know, in the halls of Congress and in the, the marble palace of the highest court in the land.
0: If FDR's failed court-packing scheme has taught us one thing, it's that Justice Frankfurter was right when he said, quote, few speculations are more treacherous than diagnosis of motives or genetic explanations of the positions taken by justices in Supreme Court decisions. We shouldn't be so quick to assume we know the secret political motivation behind a justice's vote in any particular case. And court-packing
1: is only likely to stoke the flames of speculation and tempt us to see switches in time that never were. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas
0: for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST.
4: Oh, my favorite Supreme Court opinion. I, you know, I, I don't know whether I could, I could name one. I, I do have an interesting story, um, about a, a person, uh, I know who was interviewing with, um, a justice and was asked, a, a judge, I'm sorry, it was a, a federal judge, and was asked to name, um, the worst Supreme Court opinion ever decided. And she said Wickard against Filburn, and she got the job. Um, so um, I, I don't know whether that would work with other judges, but it, it seems to have been successful there.
6: Well, I don't get back to D.C. until Friday night.
1: Ships in the night, maybe next At next which
6: time.
4: point I will go door knocking
6: because of my school board run. So Shapiro for falsechurch.org. <laughs> yeah.
1: You got my vote, except I can't right. vote. That opinion was decided on my birthday. Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Cool story. <laughs> cool story. I love that story. It's the best. I mean, I challenge certificate of need laws for a living. It's like poetic.
5: This is, a, of course, as all historical stories are, quite complicated and filled with details. And I'll try to indicate what I think are the most important details, but I may get way too far into the weeds here uh, uh, to uh, be helpful. And we'll see what happens.
6: I hope you don't want to get into the details of the actual descent because I sort of read it and it's kind of boring.
1: I I read it today and I was like, this descent's amazing. (laughs) Shadow Docket. 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 (laughs) That was beautiful, Elizabeth, by the way.
0: Let me do it again. Shadow Docket. I would pay for that. (laughs) how much do i owe you (laughs) side hustle (laughs) okay so i can leave right check out dist okie dokie